Well, welcome to the Change Wizard podcast number five, Motivation. Now, motivation is a powerful yet tricky beast, according to James Clear. And so we're going to explore the nature of this tricky beast in the next 20 minutes or so. Motivation has similar roots to the words motive and motion, which as far as I can see suggests the notion of movement based upon some kind of motivation. We have motives for our behaviours and our behaviours can be seen as external actions. So what is this thing called motivation and how can we consider it? Well, let's start with an assumption, something that I think is really worth you reflecting upon. Every behaviour is motivated by something. Every behaviour has a positive intention for the person doing the behaviour. Now that opens a whole series of questions about what we mean by positive and negative and and what if somebody's behaviour harms somebody else. Is that really a positive behaviour? Well, for the person doing the behaviour, quite possibly they are getting something out of it. We need to remember that in terms of motivation and behaviour, context is vitally important. And therefore, we need to consider that positive and negatives are value-laden terms. Now, Alain Holsworth from behavioraleconomics.com has produced three laws of human behaviour based upon Newton's three laws of motion. And according to the website, law one is that behaviour tends to follow the status quo unless it is acted upon by a decrease in friction or increase in fuel. Now think about that for a moment. You are not going to make a change in your behaviour. You're not motivated to make a change unless something else happens. We spoke about this in, in very early on in the podcast on change, the nature of change and our own inertia and resistance to change. What is that transforming agent that makes you want to consider change? Better still, what is that transforming agent that motivates change? Uh, Law two, well, behavior is a function of the person and their environment. We react to our environment. We react and adapt according to our environment and the things around us. As we'll see in a moment, that can lead us to to a consideration of different kinds of motivations. And then law three, for every decision made, there are trade-offs and the potential for unintended consequences. If you like, this is the law of cause and effect. We need to consider that greatly. Um, I'll, I'll offer a little thought. Have you, When you were at school, did you get the teachers coming up to you and asking you what you wanted to be when you grew up and how you wanted to plan your path towards that? Or if they, your parents, or if your parents or your teachers told you off about some behaviour because of the potential consequences, are you aware that the part of your brain that deals with long-term cause and effect planning doesn't fully develop until the late teens? 
So to ask younger people to consider long-term cause and effect planning is actually beyond their immediate capabilities. Now, like you, I know some adults that are not able to make decisions and look at the long-term cause and effect uh, of their actions. However, it is something that we can grow to do and it is something that we can accept responsibility for. More about that later. Let's look at uh, this idea of extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation for a moment. Extrinsic suggests from the outside our environment actually dictates certain kinds of behavioural responses or expects certain kinds of motivations. It's our survival mechanism. It's, it's that thing that if we see something threatening or harmful in our immediate environment, we tend to behave in a way which will take us away from that situation. Likewise, um, if we see something in our environment that is attractive towards us, we may well move towards it. These are actually called push factors to move away from or pull factors to move towards. Actually, the other thing to think about in terms of extrinsic behaviours is also the expectations of others. And those others may be our parents, our friends, our family, our society. And often we are motivated by rewards and punishments in those situations. Some people prefer to talk about intrinsic motivation. That's from within ourselves. So what's that all about? Well, intrinsic motivation is about our programming, our conditioning, which actually sounds like it's less in our control than we thought about. And indeed, our podcast on stories and our podcast on changes has a direct relevance here. We're also motivated intrinsically by what we perceive to be our goals and ambitions. The degree to which those goals are imposed upon us are based upon the stories we've been led to believe about ourselves. The degree to which our ambitions are truly our own are whether we choose to make and write new stories about our lives and our futures. There are some thoughts to go along with this idea of intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. First of all, it suggests a stimulus response set of actions or reactions to any situation. And I like to think that we can, as human beings, move beyond the simple stimulus response programming that exists within us. True, we are conditioned by those things around us. We are conditioned to behave in certain ways. However, we also have the capacity to reflect upon our behaviours and our behavioural choices or lack of choices. The behaviourist movement of the 1950s and 60s, whereby there was this belief that we could educate human beings simply by rewards and punishments, has been replaced in later years by what we now know as cognitive behaviourism. This idea that there is a, a black box programming within us, our unconscious mind, where we filter out some perceptions and some ideas in favour of the ones that have been installed within our internal programming. We are more than just stimulus response machines. The other thing about a stimulus response reaction is that it doesn't necessarily explain behavioural complexity. You see, you and I will engage in quite complex behaviours and it's not towards a single end result quite often. Normally in our behaviour patterns it's very difficult to define the exact underlying motive that drove us to behave in a certain way. We chain our behaviours together in the way that we chain our perceptions and our responses together so that we create internal meaning. 
which may actually bear no resemblance to the outside world, but every relevance to our internal world. The, the other issue with this stimulus response set of actions is they may seem to be outside considerations of long-term cause and effect planning, which is why that long-term cause and effect thinking takes longer to develop. Actions, reactions doesn't really account for a rise in motivation after a course of action has been started. Now, this is the interesting thing we'll explore in a moment. Sometimes, once we make the change, that's when the motivation happens. So let's try and unpick all of what I've just said in a, in a, a simple framework. A number of years ago, I was trying to work on a, a coaching framework that would explore uh, human behaviours from the point of view of every behaviour has a positive intention. So to understand the motive behind the behaviour might give us insights into how we can encourage people to consider changing those behaviours. So I came up with what I've called the 3M motivational model, and I've been using this in workshops and, and in coaching for a long time. If you'd like to imagine that we've got three aspects of ourselves or our, our needs that drive our behaviours. We're in a current situation. And that current situation, the environment around us and our internal needs are in a, a melting pot which produces a whole series of behaviours. So let's look at what I've called our motives for our behaviours. This is the base level of the origin of all of our behaviours, the motives. They're drawn from Maslow's hierarchy of human needs, but rather than consider them, considering them as needs, I'm considering them as drivers. We have physiological drivers. That is the stuff that keeps us alive, the stuff we need to eat, the stuff we need to, to keep on surviving. Then there's biological drivers, which may be considered as our animalistic imperative to pass on our genes, the fact that we are controlled by our biology in many, many respects. Then our emotional drivers. This is above the level of our biological drivers, we have emotional connections and emotional needs. Then I've included something called social drivers because we have social needs and spiritual drivers because uh, we're now in this uh, phase of human development where we can consider these other ways of dealing with our environment and our connection to our environment. Now, bearing in mind that spiritual drivers are not religious drivers. I put religion into the social driver category for reasons that you may like to consider. And then we have our aspirational drivers. These are things that we, we aspire to become and are we're driven towards. I think that's what Maslow would have called self-actualization. Above the level of motives, I have this area that I've called modifiers. These are the things that are at a level above our basic motives. We can call them our attitudes, values and beliefs, if you like. And these are the, the bits inside of ourselves that come from our, our upbringing, the stories we've told ourselves and the stories we're willing to accept about ourselves and rewrite. And then the last level, models. These models of behaviour come from the things that we've done in the past that have worked for us. And if they work for us, we keep on doing them. We do not change the status quo. If 
our models of behavior need to be changed because they don't get us the result we want, then we may re refer to a peer group, our friends, and see what our friends are doing. We observe them and learn from their behaviors and attitudes. And finally, we may look at esteemed others, those people that we hold in high regard to see how they behave. Our motives are filtered by our modifiers. Our modifiers are fit, slotted into a, a model for our behavior and our behavior results to act upon our current situation, which changes the level of motives and takes us back on the cycle again. So let me give you a working example of this. I may have the emotional driver of wanting a hug. Now I may be in a group of people and there may be some people in that group that I've identified that could give me a hug. But I don't simply run up to them and grab them and get the hug I need because my behavior is modified by my own values, my own attitudes, and my own beliefs. I believe that people have the right not to be hugged by me. I value that freedom, and that gives me an attitude or a, or a behavioral modification, which means I don't rush and get the hug. Also, I, in the past, I may have had a model, as a child, I may have had a model of behavior whereby I just rushed up and gave somebody a hug, irrespective of the consequences. But over time, I've learned that what worked as a child doesn't work as an adult. And so I needed to find new models of behavior. Or I continued doing the same thing, only much more frequently or much harder, um, or much with, with much more force, and therefore impose my will on somebody else. If I'm not getting the emotional my emotional needs or drivers met because of the modifiers i have in place the values attitudes and beliefs then i have to adapt my behavioral model i may look at how my friends get a hug when they need a hug i may look at how esteemed others get a hug when they need a hug and i may pattern my changes of behavior on them based upon the feedback that i get when i go to have a hug I may have learned that a particular body language uh, or facial expression. Now, will let me give you an example of how this hug. works. When I was a school teacher, I will carry on. I was called to work with a year ten pupil who that will change the was, current situation. Say, having that, some difficult driver in will no longer in be the UK, operating years ten and, and eleven in schools, operating the fifteen age group, and then I will go back currently to sitting their examinations driver. This particular young woman that I was asked to speak to, to addressed. was having certain problems in class. They were behavioral problems. She would be aggressive to the teachers. She was being uh, aggressive to the students. She was being disruptive in lessons. In fact, she was on the verge of being expelled from the school. When I asked the teachers about this young woman, they told me that in the previous years, that's from the age of 12 to 15, 14, that's 7, 8, and 9 in, in the school years, that she was a pleasant student and they'd had no trouble with her. Now, the word pleasant for me is rather a bland way of describing a learner. Generally, teachers are faced with classes of 20 to 30 people. And if, you are a, if you're a pleasant student, you can be one of those students that are in the middle of the class that are not noticeable by the teacher you are an also-ran kind of student. You're not one of the gifted and talented students who actually get the additional support and the praise for being gifted and talented, and you're not one of the disruptive pupils 
that are constantly being uh, supported for this disruptive behavior. So to be clear, this young woman from um, year seven, eight and nine in school had been a pleasant student, no problems. Wasn't perceived as being overly bright. In fact, as I say, perceived by teachers as being a bit bland and, and also ran nondescript character. Over the summer holidays, something must have happened because she, when she came back in year 10, she was the disruptive person that uh, I was called in to help. Her, her aggression was actually physical violence aimed at other students. There was disruption in the classroom because she was throwing chairs and tables around, as one teacher told me. Now, this young woman had experienced no significant changes in her home behavior over the summer period. So something was going on with her. So I sat her down and she was a very pleasant um, young woman. In fact, she was very engaging. She was willing to talk and she was in no way disruptive when I was talking to her. I wanted to understand the motives for the behavior or at least I wanted to look at how we could change the models of the behavior that were addressing her motives. I asked her what had changed over the summer holidays, and she said to me, well, she'd started a GCSE courses when she came back in September. I said to her, what does that mean? And she said to me, well, that means um, I'm not with my friends. I said, well, what does that mean? And she says, well, that means my friends aren't supporting me. I said to her, okay, so what does that mean? And she said, well, that means that the teachers will find out that I can't read or write. I asked her what would happen if she got support. And this is where these modifiers kicked in. It was clear from her response that her values and attitudes were that to be given support clearly given support within the school situation would set her aside and actually make her feel even more stupid and be put down by those students that she thought um, were smarter than she was. Her response was to actually act out so the teachers wouldn't find the difficulty that she had with literacy. She was acting up as a diversionary tactic now, this may sound a little bit weird, but this is exactly what was going on for her. Her values and attitudes were such that she did not want to be seen to be given support. And that was the only uh, way through the problem that she saw it at that time. Now, the truth of the matter is that she could read and she could write. However, she had been supported during the earlier years in school by working with groups. And she worked closely with a group of, of friends who actually supported her learning. When those friends went to different subjects to her, she lost that social support. She could read and she could write, but she did have, admittedly, relatively low literacy skills, which caused problems. How we solved this was quite simple. Because she didn't want to be seen to be given support, we offered a secret support, if that makes any sense. Support at times where it would not be obvious that she was getting this additional support. In fact, 
when we offered that to her, she readily accepted it because she saw that as a way of changing her own responses to situations. So she was quite a smart cookie, really. She was able to be self-reflective. We put the support in place, and after a few months, her work in school started to get better. Her behaviour problem ceased, her work got better and better, and at some point, she started to recognise the value of being mentored or coached in the lesson. And so she championed the learning support staff to come in and work with her in lessons. And at the same time, that enabled other people that were having similar problems in the class to be supported too. The whole situation was turned around because we got to explore what underpinned the behaviour itself, what the modifiers were, what her values and beliefs were about it, and below that, what was driving the behaviour. Is this making sense? For you, you can interrogate any one of your behaviours by asking yourself, what is the core driver? What is the motive that underpins that behaviour? Is it a physiological uh, driver, a biological driver? Is it an emotional root, social, spiritual, or aspirational in some form? They can be a mix of these things, by the way. And once you've identified the driver, you can actually look at what's modifying or what's filtering the way that you behave and the way that you respond to other people. The question is to ask yourself, what do I get out of this behavior? What does that mean? What is the behavior? What does that mean? What do I get out of it? Peel this onion skin away to get to the core. Now, if you are having real problems with unpicking your own motivations, then this is where a professional coach or therapist really comes into play because they can guide you through this process. Now, here's another thought. Motivation is often the result of action, not the cause of it. I'll say that again. Motivation is often the result of action, not the cause of it. Getting started, even in very small ways, is a form of active inspiration that naturally produces momentum. So says James Clear. In terms of making changes in our lives, this is very much the case, isn't it? The block, the inspiring thought, or the idea leads to small experimental changes of behavioural habits. When we recognise the immediate benefits of those small changes, they themselves become the motivation to drive us forward. The challenge, of course, as we've discovered in earlier podcasts, is to overcome inertia and limiting mindsets. We also need to remember that any new habit or any new behavioural habit needs 66 days in which to become embedded in, in your unconscious, as it were. That means that after 66 days of consistently performing a particular new habit, it becomes the default habit, which is quite an interesting thing in terms of uh, behaviours that you want to change that are quite small and easily targeted. Dieting, more exercise, giving up smoking, for example. The motivation needs to be addressed by what will you get out of the behaviour that's changed? How will it change you? How will you feel better about it? But the challenge is to overcome the inertia. And to overcome the inertia, you have to keep practising the new habit for 66 days. 
Now let me tell you about Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi. I can't spell his name and I can hardly say it, but this gentleman is astounding. His work on positive psychology really focuses on something he called the flow. The flow is that state, that peak performance state that we get ourselves into when we are totally engaged, totally engrossed and totally focused. In fact, it is the zone. Now, how do we get into the zone? Well, according to Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi, if we, our perceived skill level and our challenge that we're facing are actually in sync, we start to move into this area of flow, this area of peak performance. If our perceived skill level is below the, our perception of the challenge, then we get anxious because we feel we cannot achieve the task. If our skill level is higher than the perceived challenge level, then we get bored because we're not fueling our own creativity and imagination and, in fact, not developing our skills. We need to put ourselves in a place where our skill level, and this is our perception, by the way, how we perceive our skills, how our skill level is slightly below the perception of the skills needed for the challenge that you want to meet. You have to be stretching yourself to maintain peak performance. Now, let's put this into a sporting context, if you like. If I was to constantly work with or rehearse with or practice with people that are at the same skill level as myself, then the motivation to continue that isn't very great. In fact, it becomes quite a boring, repetitive task. However, if I work with people that are better than I am by a small degree, then my motivation is to reach their level. I used to do a bit of judo uh, years and years and years ago. Uh, there's a long story involved with that. But anybody who's seen me knows I'm quite a big guy. Uh, and I've always been a big guy. So I started doing judo when I was in some late 20s, really. Wasn't going to do it seriously, just wanted to get a bit fit. But because I was a big guy, they didn't put me with the white belts or the novices to do some of the sparring. They actually put me with the brown and the black belts as well as the teachers. So I was constantly being thrown around the room, which was a novel experience. However, by being challenged by, by their advanced skill level, my game improved. Let's put it that way. I started to meet and rise to the challenge, which for me was quite motivational. I could see the quick development of skills I needed to be on the dojo mat with these people that were much more highly proficient than myself. When we have to reach or work a little more to meet the challenge, not only do we potentially learn more, but we are more motivated. So, Let's give you some ideas of how to increase your levels of motivation. Create new daily habits in a routine way. Create a schedule. Keep a record of your daily habits and keep on going. I've become a coach on the Coach Me website, which is a very powerful website, where you can set your daily challenges and the system allows you to record your challenges and it allows you to measure your own progress 
and actually being able to set a challenge, for example, like having a zero inbox and say that you're going to achieve that three times a week and clicking the little button that records when you have that zero inbox is quite motivational. It's also about accountability. You are recognizing that you have met your goals and you're holding yourself accountable. Now, coaching is about having an accountability partner and maybe you would like to explore that and if, you, if so, drop me a line. The thing about this, though, is you have a sequence of meeting your daily tasks and routines for a week, and then you miss a couple of days. Often the feeling is one of beating yourself up. In fact, that's the very worst thing you can do. You just simply draw a line under it and start again. It's kind of interesting, isn't it, that a lot of um, addiction programs, like the AA approach, talks about how many days sober. And if you have a drink, then you start back at day one again. That can actually be demotivational, but the way that it's framed and the way that it's often taken with the support in those settings is that, okay, you've made a mistake, start again. In terms of all your daily habits, you let yourself go for two or three days, you were doing other things for two or three days, you were distracted, stuff gets in the way, but you just put yourself back onto the program and record your daily habits. What kind of daily habits? How about a daily gratitude journal? How about a log, not of what you need to do, not a task list, but a done list. Every day, create a done list um, and just keep going. You need to design challenges that are on the just manageable scale. Push yourself a little bit, push yourself to achieve. Remember, motivation may come from starting something. It isn't the motivation that actually gets you going, perhaps. Remember that your thoughts and your suggestions are not commands. So if you're working or you're feeling that you're having a bad day and it's suggesting that you stop working now, you can act upon that thought or you can push it to the back of your mind and carry on plowing through. One of my particular goals is to write more and uh, I want to develop a, a good writing habit. And I think one of the things I've discovered in recent months by listening to and looking at other professionals and actually by finding a mentor that will actually give me a few tips is that professional writers never have writer's block. Now, I don't mean they don't get stuck. What I do mean is they actually have a daily habit of actually moving through that block and not allowing themselves the luxury of saying, oh, I'll wait for the inspiration to come. They find the inspiration by doing something practical. Now, here's a really, really big tip. If you have a job to do, a task to do that you don't want to do, that you've been creatively avoiding or procrastinating, then there's a fantastic technique called the Pomodoro technique. And what you do, you set yourself a timer, say for 20 minutes, and you switch the timer on and you start the task you've been putting off. Because you've made a start on that task, when the 20 minutes is up, there'll be a thought that says, oh, I'll just carry on until I finish it now. Because you've started the process, you've made that small step and your motivation is coming from the action of doing something. Does that make sense? And then if you think about it, once you've achieved that task you've been putting off, how much better it feels to go, yep, done it. I'm as guilty as anybody else about having tasks that I put off, particularly 
anything to do with taxes <laughs> and accounting. That's the kind of stuff that doesn't float my boat, but it has to be done. So I need to force myself to sit down, give myself 20 minutes to make a start on it. And what tends to happen is I complete the task, taking far less time than I do when I worry about it. Does that make sense? So your thoughts are suggestions, not commands. Next idea, to be motivated, keep your final goal, your rationale for doing something in clear focus. Keep your final goal in mind, the final picture of what it is you're trying to achieve and what you want to achieve. Muhammad Ali, who I quote quite a lot, actually said that you have to do the miles on the road before you can dance under the lights in the ring. He apparently hated training he hated the gym work, he hated the stuff, the running, he hated all of that stuff. But he knew he had to do it because the final goal wasn't the exercise, wasn't the routines he was practicing in the gym. His final goal was to dance under the lights and to be the greatest. And we all have that within us. We need to remember also that discomfort is a temporary thing. It's inertia that's resisting the new. Think about the change podcast when we said that we are constantly in this state of status quo, this balanced state, this equilibrium, this homeostasis that our habits have produced for us. To break one of those habits produces bodily inertia, respiratory system, our breathing, our immune system, all changes, and it feels odd. Our emotions change around that, and that is the inertia we need to get past and through, which is why starting something, giving yourself 20 minutes on a task, giving yourself a daily routine is very motivational. I suppose the last thing to say on that issue is that when I was coaching in schools and colleges, I would often be presented with students that were demotivated. They wanted to go into school and do a motivational presentation to these demotivated learners. My response to the teachers was that I've never met a non-motivated or demotivated person. After they give me the strange look, I'd, I'd simply say that every behavior is motivated by something. What people are often saying is that they don't feel that somebody else is motivated in the direction that they think they should be motivated. Motivation is something you need to own. So what if your behaviours resist change? Well, reflect on motives, values or models that create that behaviour. Journal, meditate, explore, reflect upon all of those things that underpin the behaviour itself. What if your behaviours are self-destructive in nature? Well, find a therapist to help you manage your behavioural changes. Until next week, stay motivated.